Today we'll be looking at, at uh, part two uh, in our series here on, um, on the, the DNA, the part few DNA. What are the traits of a disciple? Uh, the trait that we'll be looking at here is that uh, disciples enjoy, or uh, sorry, live God's story. Um, I really believe that as, as we've been thinking about this a bit, uh, I, I truly believe that in order to live God's story, we need to understand what God's story is. We need to be uh, reading God's story and reading it rightly. Today, uh, we'll be in a text, Luke 24, that is personally one of my absolute favorites. Uh, it is one that has been one of the most transformative, uh, foundational um, texts uh, for me in my life, in my journey, uh, in understanding the Bible, in my long lifetime wrestling with the uh, mysterious, powerful, wonderful Word of God. And, uh, and so I'm excited to talk about this a little bit more with you guys. I know that we all just settled out of reverence for God's word, though I'd ask that you stand up as we read our text. This is Luke 24, verses 13 through 27. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. And, and moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that, he, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all scripture the things concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Live God's story. As I've said before, if we are to live God's story rightly, we need to understand God's story rightly. And to understand God's story rightly, we need to read God's story rightly. There's a problem we have here with these two gentlemen. They're not reading God's story rightly. There's a problem that you and I have uh, often. It's that we don't read God's story rightly. You see, I think this idea of hope, I hear about uh, Christianity, I hear about Jesus, and I hear about this hope that's there. 
A question that I come up to a lot of times, and I went through it in my own season of, I guess, coming to faith is a term that we've kind of made. I think the biblical text here says of uh, my eyes being opened to the truth of, uh, of, of his word was this question of if, if, if this Christianity promises so much hope, why don't I feel that? Why don't I, why don't I have that hope? Uh, why isn't that there? Why do life's circumstances seem bigger than the hope all these Christians in my opinion, at that time, that all these opinions are faking to have. Well, when I was a kid, um, I had a, uh, well, I still do, have an incredible imagination, like uh, an annoying imagination that's so wild. Um, I was very enthusiastic about things, still am. You guys are very patient with me. Thank you for that. Um, but, uh, but one of the things that I loved so much that tapped into this was, uh, was Disney, uh, just like all things Disney. Now, I'm not like endorsing them or saying I agree with the whole machine that is Disney, but I love how they tell stories. I love how they uh, invite you into imagination. I absolutely love that you can just be transcended into this world of wonderful storytelling. These characters are larger than life and just wonderful. Um, and so I got to go to a place, uh, the privilege to go to a place um, that uh, has been referred to as the greatest place on earth. Uh, so uh, Disney World, Disneyland. I went there a couple times when I was, when I was growing up. And uh, there's this, this place in Disneyland and in Disney World that's very magical. It's all magical. Um, it's called Space Mountain. Now, uh, Space Mountain was like phenomenal. So I grew up in the 90s. Um, and NASA was rocking, and things were fantastic, and I was going to be an astronaut, and, uh, and so Space Mountain was my chance, uh, and uh, so I loved it, and I was so excited. We heard that we were going. When I was eight, we go to Space Mountain, and, uh, and my dad is much like me, if you've ever met him, very storytelling, very, very enthusiastic, very excited about things, so we stand in line, and this man like, could make a line seem like the ride, and so we're like so excited. It's so fun. We're looking at all this stuff. We're really getting into it. I'm eight. I'm loving this. I'm like, hey, this is it. This is my chance. I may never go to Mars, but I'm going to Space Mountain. And, uh, and so we get up on the roller coaster, and we go. And if you've ever been on it, you kind of know what it is. I don't want to give too many spoilers, but you got to go zipping around. And my dad's throwing his hands up and screaming, and we're, we're just loving this thing. And I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. I was in space. This is wonderful. So then fast forward about eight years. I was about 16. I went with, uh, like, on a high school trip. We did the marching parade or whatever. I played the bass drum. I'd never played it before, but it got me a free ticket to Disney World. So I played bass drum that day. It was amazing. Um, it was awful. Uh, and uh, so bad. The, the, um, so I had gone on a lot of roller coasters in that time. Uh, Space Mountain is a roller coaster. Uh, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd learned a lot about, you know, physics and, and that kind of stuff. And... Um, so then we go to Space Mountain this time around, and uh, it's Disney World, so it's going to be bigger, better, right? It's not land, it's the world, it's, so it's going to be better, and we get up there, and we go, and I'm ready, and since I've been on roller coasters, right, I'm not remembering it rightly, and I'm like, okay, here comes the big drop, because that's how we start roller coasters. Spoiler alert, you just kind of like, and that's about it, and then you just go on this little thing, and I'm like, what is this? What is going on here? This is just a can that they turn the lights off, and they poke some holes in the walls, and this is Space Mountain. This is this is a joke, and I was so upset with it. I was like, this is this was nothing like what I remember. Something had changed there um, in that experience. Now, I'll wait for kind of the, 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 the final analogy of what that is, but I, I do think that oftentimes when I thought of my own sense and understanding of Christianity, or Christ. 
I've often viewed it like Space Mountain. Maybe you're like me in this. That it's a ride for those left in the dark and easily amused by gimmicks. It's not that, but it takes a lot of imagination to really turn it into something wonderful. And I've talked to a lot of people, and I've experienced it in dark seasons of doubt. That Christianity just seems sometimes like we create something much bigger than what it actually is. And that's a tough one. I think uh, maybe, maybe if you, uh, you think of, of it as an organized religion that just simply splashes a new genre with Jesus there. It's a little different than Jehovah's Witness. It's a little different than Mormon, but they're kind of all in the same ballpark. It's an organized religion. We're doing something so that we can take the ride. Uh, maybe you're looking uh, at it from the other side. Maybe you are like the two guys walking to the road in Emmaus, and you've been on that ride, so to speak. And you've, you've gone that way. You've felt emotions. You've felt that passion. You've felt what feels really Christian. And you're wondering, like, why, why isn't this painting out? What, I've done this before. What, where's this hope? I thought there was supposed to be hope at the end of this. And you wonder uh, sometimes that maybe skeptics are, are right in that the idea that, that maybe once we turn on the lights a little more, we understand a little bit more about physics, we understand a lot less about imagination and hard science, that maybe we'll just realize that this isn't really all it's cracked up to be. It leaves us in a pretty hopeless spot. These two guys are there. These two guys are feeling that. That, that, that somehow they were caught onto something that was supposed to be amazing and wonderful. That they were supposed to be uh, rejoicing in this. That their king, their redeemer, was supposed to have come. I mean, he's talking about it, right? But now he's dead. <laughs> what just happened? Someone turned the lights on and the whole show's over. Well, Jesus invites us into something that I think is a problem. Uh, maybe not to the degree I'm talking, but very subtle ways a problem we have with our faith. Uh, it's this idea that, that we think of Jesus in ways that maybe he's not exactly uh, revealed himself to be. Or we think of Jesus in an unbalanced view, and that's really where we want to hit. We don't think of him as he is revealed to us in all of Scripture. So what I want to urge you to uh, today is that when we read the Bible, we read the Bible with Christ as the revealed point and pattern of Scripture. He is the point of everything in Scripture, and he is the pattern for living that Scripture out. So the three points that I've got here for you today, the first one is just going to be kind of that reveal. I want to go there. We're, in, we're kind of in a dark, intense spot right now. And I, and I, want, to, I want to go there in the sermon to, to really diagnose what's wrong with these guys' thinking. And I invite you to think about your own life and the journey, the road to Emmaus you may be walking on and how you are doubting in hopelessness in certain areas because maybe you have the wrong view of Jesus Christ. You see, I'll do a quick re recap here. Uh, verses 13 through, uh, through 21. We'll go there. Uh, verse 13 through 14. These men are walking along to Emmaus. They're talking, about each, uh, talking with each other about all these things. The text says all these things they're talking about. It's everything about Passion Week, everything we talk about and celebrate in, uh, in Easter, and then even more beyond, uh, beyond that, just all the things leading up to it. So all these things they're talking about, it, and they're saying, what's going on here? Verse 15 and 16, Jesus joins their conversation, but we read that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, I want to note that that is a very important line to understand 
if we're going to understand the whole thing. Their eyes were kept from knowing him, from recognizing him at this point. And, uh, and the moment that they do realize him is just a, a beautiful moment. Verse 17, Jesus asked them, okay, so I've joined you. I'm walking with you. What are you guys talking about? And they reply uh, so ironically, and, and I want to take a moment here. Uh, Luke understands humor. Like sometimes we go to church and sometimes we go to the Bible and we think that it's just this dry thing that we should be really respectful for. There is like just searing irony in this that these people then respond to me. They say, wait, are you the only one who didn't understand what was going on here? He's the point of this whole week. Like he is the thing. If there's one person that knew infinitely more than everyone, it is this guy, but they don't know him. And I love that about it. Like, are you the only one that doesn't know what's going on here? What would Jesus do? If I were Jesus, right then I'd be like, well, hey, surprise, guys, it's me. You know, like, hey, I did know. Or, or, or you know, do his thing that makes them open their eyes to recognize him or whatever it is. Uh, there'd be a point where I would say this, and it's so wonderful that Jesus doesn't do that. How many times do our kids or, or, or people who are young in the faith or, or don't even recognize where they're at in the faith say things like this? And they, they say things that's like, oh, wait, but that's a given. Like, people know this, right? You know you're talking to Jesus, the point, Right? And we just want to say, here's the answer, instead of invite them into a process. This is a really good modeling of Jesus, where he could have easily said, I'm back, guys. It is the third day. You were right. And he invites them into a conversation. He does that. He says, so, so what things? Tell me about it. What's troubling you? And then they give him something so beautiful. They give him this rundown. They say, here's, here are the things that we're talking about. A Jesus of Nazareth was a mighty prophet. Our, our, uh, our rulers delivered him up to be crucified. That we ourselves had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. That it's now the third day, the day that he himself said he would rise. But we and our friends have gone and we've seen the empty tomb. Things aren't lining up. Verse 21 is so huge here. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. I had hoped that Space Mountain was going to be phenomenal. They had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Here's something that you and I do that is much like these gentlemen here, and it always will result in hopelessness. It's when we, don't, when we see God on our terms, when we view a situation on our terms, and when we don't get that holy perspective that the Bible gives. See, what these people thought, these two guys, they thought that he was the redeemer of Israel. Now, Bible quiz here real fast. Was he? Yes. But what kind of redeemer did they think he was? They thought he was going to be a redeemer who comes in and slits throats and establishes his physical throne here on a physical kingdom, has his military surrounding him, and now he has Pax Romana in his hand. He is going to be the Roman peace. He is going to establish this thing, right? That's what they think. Well, that kind of redeemer, that kind of king, that kind of ruler dies. But he said, I didn't come, guys, to redeem you or Israel. I came so that I could offer redemption to all. That's a different redeemer. And one redeemer can die and it's over. This redeemer just gets started with his death. And he rises again to his glory. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
So the big point that I'm making, I want to make it very clear, is that oftentimes we get discouraged as Christians. We get discouraged with the Christian message. We've, we don't find hope in this when circumstances change one way or the other because they're kicking against those selfish ways in which we defined Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, on his own terms, is sufficient for us, for faith, for life, for eternity. It's when we go in and change him to something different, that, uh, that, that we, we set our hope on a wrong Christ, on a wrong Redeemer, on a wrong Messiah. The big, uh, the big scholarly word that you could throw around and sound super smart, I'm going to throw it around right now so I sound super smart, um, no, is, uh, is called isogesis. Uh, the basic idea of isogesis is that we read our biases or our agenda into something. So uh, an example of this, um, the okay response on texting. Uh, the okay response on texting. When you get that, that is like a, a straight invitation to isogeet the situation. So uh, pray for my wife because she has to like talk through these kind of texts with me. This is such a horrible thing. Um, so, uh, so I send it, I send something, I say blah, 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 blah. I'm rattling off the text, right? And then I get okay. So what I just do right there. Now I am expected to understand what she's saying there, not just okay. So I've written a nice list of what that could mean. <laughs> okay can mean an angry end to a conversation. Okay, yeah, it gets done. Uh, it could be a dismissive agreement, like stop talking about what color of white we're going to paint the wall, Josh. It's going to be white. Okay, just get it done with. You know, something like that. Um, it could be a heartfelt enthusiasm. Okay, you know, uh, and uh, I guess there could also be read receipt. Like if you don't have the iPhone that gives you the you know, read receipt, you could just be like, okay, got it. Um, so there are several of those. Oftentimes, you know, I'll be like, hey, yeah, so, you know, whatever, whatever, I get the okay. And I'm like, okay, so now here's where I go. Uh, my situation, where are we at? So she, she could be tired. We have three kids. It's like miserable at night. Night and day are just weird things. We have a lot of coffee. Maybe she's tired. I'm going to go with angry. She's angry on this one. And that's basically where I go on it. I was like, ah, every time she says, okay. Uh, so yeah. So, and then she gets to hear literally this conversation every time. Okay. And uh, so what a, what a patient, wonderful woman um, who <laughs> hates it when she texts. Okay. Now. Um, so that's the idea of eisegesis. I bring that in. I'm like, yeah, she's probably angry. Is she? No, she's probably just tired or, or enthusiastic about whatever I just texted, which is always ridiculous. Um, but, uh, but that's where it is. So I'm isogeting. I'm bringing this in. Now, there's big problems in this, right? You maybe have had some of this communication here. This is why we, uh, why we invented emojis, because they can show somewhat of the emotion that our texting cannot. So that's a little bit of, uh, of the history, I guess, my personal history of emojis. So you get a lot of thumbs up for me. This means enthusiastic okay. Um, so now you know what that means. Uh, <laughs> Oh, good grief. Uh, where are we in the Bible here? Um, so we bring all of that back in. That's what they're doing. They're isogeting. This is a really serious thing that they're doing because they are bringing in what they want the Redeemer to be. Examples of this, I'm going to go there. Uh, Jesus is that guy who is going to give you, I'll quote him, that your best life now. We could Joel Osteen this thing and say, if you believe in Jesus Christ and you deposit your seed, you plant your seed of money into our triangle scheme, our church is what they're doing. If you plant it there and you have enough faith, 
then you are going to have a harvest of money. And that is actually a gospel that is preached probably right now uh, across America and the world, unfortunately. That is a weird Jesus. That is not the Jesus that we see revealed in Scripture. That is an easy straw man. Well, it should be an easy straw man uh, uh, argument there. Uh, that, that, that that's the kind of Jesus we're talking about. But we don't do that oftentimes. If you're sitting here and you've been here multiple times, you know that's not what we're pushing here. We have subtle, wrong, uh, subtly wrong, unbalanced views of Jesus that we bring into our own lives. If I am a Christian, my marriage will get fixed. Now my hope is Christ-centered uh, or gospel-centered, uh, but really it's not as Christ is defined because we're saying that Christ is the fixer of marriages. That's kind of true, but he's the fixer of hearts, and then the people can work on their marriage, right? The, the Christ is a... Uh, is, is, is a Christ who is of peace, of rest, and he wants that. So sometimes we'll do this. We'll clear off our schedule. We'll say no to all of our loved ones. We'll, we'll pull away for a time of, of solitude somehow, and we'll say, Christ wants me to be peaceful and restful, so I just need some vacation. And we call that some kind of Christ-centered way of living, when all we've done is really do a wrongful definition of like uh, leisure and rest, and we've blessed it and baptized it and call it Christ-centered. See, there are a lot of subtle ways that we say we want to be Christ-centered. I need to be in a small group so that we can study the Bible more when really what you're going to do is just jockey for position on who's smarter and call it Christ-centered. See, there are subtle ways that we try to make our lives Christ-centered, much like these people wanted to be Redeemer-centered. And if we don't have a balanced view of who Christ is as revealed in Scripture, not on our own desires— then we are going to inevitably end up with hopelessness because those won't pan out. Those won't, those won't, uh, those won't last. Those won't, won't be what we want. So Jesus makes this turn here. Jesus makes a, a wonderful turn here to move us from this, this, this wrong definition of Christ into a huge, vast, overwhelming beauty of him as he is revealed in all Scripture. Verses 25 and 27. These seriously are, 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 are three of the most potent verses that I've ever come across in my own journey. As someone who, is a, who, who loves literature, who loves reading, who has a ton of questions, I am the foolish one here that he's speaking to. Uh, Jesus says to these guys, he says, you don't have any hope. And I understand that. I, I get why you don't have hope. It makes sense to me. I'm going to help you understand why. You've defined Redeemer wrong. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I love that he says this. He says, you're fools. He just calls it what it is. You're you're fools. Why are you fools? Because you you have been slow to heart to believe what the prophets have spoken. And what have the prophets spoken? Exactly what they just told him. He said, you told me the things that are supposed to be said. You said the Christian response to Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, and everyone loved him, and then he died, and blah, blah, blah. You didn't believe that, did you? You just knew that that's what we say, right? Christ is risen from the dead. He has conquered death by death. You know, we sing this song. Oh, yeah, I'm just going to say it. This is great. You didn't believe it. It says, had you believed the words that you had read, had you gone to the scripture and actually believed that that was real, you would have seen me everywhere. 
And that is a fantastic thing. So what he says to them, maybe bringing back my, 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 my weird space uh, mountain analogy, he pulls, uh, pulling from this example, Jesus says to them, he says, you're fools. And you're hopeless because you've put your hope in space mountain. You've defined space by that ride. That is a recreation of reality. That is just a, a, a shoddy, momentary, fleeting adventure recreating reality. Believe in me. I am the beautiful, lasting immensity of space. He invites these two men who are discouraged, who are hopeless, into the real story, and that is him. Rather than trying to find one sliver in a sermon, or one sliver in this or that verse, and building our our whole theological system off of that, uh, be still and know that I am God. Okay, I'm not going to move at all, and God's going to do everything. Well, that's true, but you have a whole balanced view of God and who he is. And he definitely calls you to be active in certain ways. He says, so stop making the sliver and, and, and your, your, your limited understanding there. And look into space. Look into the immensity of who I am. Stop recreating Jesus entirely from, from little snippets and articles and bad examples of wayward Christians. Stop making that the Christ you love or hate. To know space, you must look into space, not to the coloring pages of the five-pointed stars or suns with sunglasses. These are all caricatures of the reality. You need to look into reality, and that's what I want to draw you to. If there's one thing you walk away with, I want you to know that we must be reading Christ in all of Scripture. That all of Scripture, not just the New Testament, not just the book of John, not just the whatever, all of it gives us a full picture of Jesus. And it does so in a strange way. And that strangeness invites us to look at him differently. Because I would never have written down in a million years that Jesus is prophet. That is not something I would have ever thought. And I read it here in the text, and it challenges me to grow in certain ways. That Jesus is the son of God. I would never have thought that. That Jesus is the son of man. I would never have thought that. It invites us into things that we don't normally go into. And the strange and the unfamiliar are the places where we can grow. And so, yes, this is a text that was written in different languages at a different time, in different historical circumstances and all that kind of stuff. It is very different. But we're kind of lucky because of that, because it makes us slow down and understand him a little bit more intentionally. But rather than paint this picture of the vastness that's strange, it's also really accessible. <laughs> it's really accessible to us. And I want to give you a little bit of that. I'll, I'll direct you to a few resources. I don't want to like be the teacher who just gives you like, here's the reading list, but I'm going to do that today. Because I want to give you a little bit of, uh, I want to focus more with this time here uh, on painting kind of the picture of what, what does it mean that Christ is in all of Scripture? So uh, there, there are genres of Scripture. There's genres of Scripture. There's law, there's history, there's poetry, there are prophets, their gospels and their epistles. In the two testaments, uh, there are all of these. Uh, there are these genres, and they kind of flow in the way that I that I said. You start off with the law. You, you move towards uh, towards histories, towards poetry, towards prophets, and then you hit this like one page after Malachi. That's actually like four hundred years worth of history, and then you land in Jesus Christ. There's something that happens here. In history, there's a guy, um, he was wrong. He's actually a heretic, which means really wrong. Um, he, uh, his name was Marcion. 
And, and he did this thing where he, he painted a caricature of Jesus or of God. And he said, when I read about God in the Old Testament, I see this wrathful God. I see a God that, that, that loves war and genocide. And that's weird. I don't like that. That seems dark. But then I turn the page here and I get the New Testament. For God so loved the world. Like I'm just seeing this God who loves us and who dies for us. Like he drops the law here and then Jesus comes and fulfills the law. And, and there are all these things he's making this connection on. He's like, I just can't do this. There must be two gods. Like, there's this evil God who's less because evil is less. And then there's this better God who's God of love. And I'm just going to love him there. Now, you guys can hear red flags going off left and right. Like, this is super weird. Jesus already answered him. This is why he's a heretic. He says, Jesus already answered him well before Marcion started rattling off that we just need to throw away the God of the Old Testament. We need to stop reading the Old Testament. Because Jesus says, oh, don't, worry. don't worry about this wrath and this justice and this love and this mercy. God's attributes are equally balanced at all times. They are all always equally present at all times. And I am the embodiment of that. I, Jesus Christ, am showing up as, as forms, as themes, as precursors, as, as, as prophecies to build this need for wrath to build this need for holiness, to drive us to these things and to ultimately fulfill that in the wrath of God come down on Jesus because the love of the Old Testament God has always been there driving us to this point. There's this huge connection that Jesus makes for those of us who want to not ever read the Old Testament because it's strange, because it's dark. If we read the Old Testament, we are going to be reading our Bibles infinitely closer to what Luke <laughs> did, to what, to what Paul did. I have a book. I have a resource. This is one of those resources for you. It's the, old, the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Um, it's a commentary. It's massive. It makes you feel really smart, but you really only need to read like one page of it at a time. If you ever are reading in the New Testament and you want to know how deeply it speaks to the Old Testament and draws those themes to the New and says Christ is the point of these, please just shoot me the text that you're just, I'm reading in Luke 24. Can you scan and send me that? I can send that to you. It's amazing how much of the Old Testament is, is the foundation for what we read in the New Testament. If you have a, a, a chain reference Bible, you may have citations. Follow those. Follow those in your margins, in, in the middle or on the sides or wherever you have them. Uh, follow those verses and you can see this, this web of... of, uh, of of references, this web of theology being, being, uh, being well, woven together to speak this one story of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a little bit on the academic side. What I think would be really helpful is to give you, give you a little bit of that, that, um, that urging to view what is built on the, uh, what is built, uh, or how the Old Testament builds up the New Testament. Jesus comes and he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's kind of the whole idea of what's happening. Maybe a little, uh, a little saying that's helpful to remember is that uh, what, what is foreshadowed in the Old Testament is ultimately fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. I want to go through a little bit of an exercise there, not to teach you how to make these connections um, right now, but to show you the beauty that Jesus speaks to these men here, drawing from a theme that he's showing them. I want to speak this to you. And this is going to be a little bit different. Um, I want you to hear these. If it's something where you, you, I don't know, close your eyes or whatever and receive these. Uh, this is the Old Testament interpreted 
by the New Testament, speaking of Jesus. These are, these are only a handful of the ways in which these themes of Jesus are woven throughout Scripture. So if it's something where you, you just want to hear them and receive them, uh, do that. But I want to I'll read these slowly so that we can, uh, we can understand Christ a little more rightly. Some of them might be odd, but that strangeness will invite you to make, make a, a better perspective of how you understand Jesus. So in Scripture we read, that Jesus is the anointed king in the line of David, as prophesied by many, as fulfilled uh, as a fulfillment of the histories, uh, as spoken of in Psalm 2 in the Old Testament. He is the anointed king in the line of David. Ephesians 2 tells us that this king is risen up and seated on his throne, to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. That's Matthew 28. He is our king, our ruler. This goes through the whole of Scripture. John speaks of Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. He is the fulfillment of whom the psalmists sing, especially in Psalm 119. He is the fulfillment of those delightful things. In Hosea, we hear this foreshadowing of this bridegroom and his wayward bride who just can't keep it together. Matthew 9, Jesus is spoken of as that bridegroom and he's coming for the church, the wayward bride of Christ. In Revelation, we read of this purified bride who's made holy. Ephesians 5, the pattern is set for us to act in such a way in our own marriages. We read in Leviticus, of this lamb of sacrifice, which John the Baptist rightly interprets in John 1 as the lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. Hebrews explains that he is the all-atoning sacrifice that the law required. We can't fulfill the law, but the lamb of God covers our sin. But he's not simply the Lamb of God. The Levitical priesthood is upheld. He's not simply a priest, but the high priest and mediator between God and man. And the priest who in his sovereign power offers himself as a sacrifice. Because of his love. He is a prophet. Much like all the prophets, declaring a future reality of judgment, of salvation, and of the kingdom of God. And like the prophets, he doesn't simply shout it from a mountain. He comes down and delivers that message, ushering the kingdom of God prophetically into our midst. This is how the Bible is painting this picture of Jesus. And these are not normal things that we speak of Jesus. And, and, and like a prophet, I want to go there. Uh, Daniel speaks of this son of man who will judge. And many of the prophets say that day that he will judge is on that day the son of man will come and he will judge sin and righteousness. Jesus comes and he calls himself that son of man. He is that judge. Your sin will be judged. You will be held accountable for that. 
He's also the Son of Man and the Son of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And we read in the epistles, we read in the letters that he is God now dwelling with us and in us. Isaiah speaks of a prince of peace. Paul in Ephesians speaks of that prince of peace breaking down the dividing wall of hostility through his blood. There is a peace, but it's not the absence of war. It's a true and lasting peace in his presence. That's different than the, than the Christ of peace that I often imagine. He's a deliverer. He's a redeemer. Exodus speaks of him not simply as a redeemer and a deliverer, but as one who takes us from slavery through the life of this wilderness to the promised land. That is what he is delivering us from. That is how he redeems us. And then giving you a, giving you a bunch of, uh, of, of references about the ultimate that he is, as he is our hope. As redeemer defined in all of scripture, these men can have hope. As redeemer, as peace, as king, as the way, truth, life, as a loving bridegroom, as the lamb of God, the sacrifice and the priest, and the prophet, and the judge. These are all different ways in which all of Scripture helps us to rightly understand God in different ways than we might want to define him. And it draws us to a hope because the ways that you and I define Jesus on our own terms are not lasting. They will not pan out. They will end somehow. And in the end of that is hopelessness. We read... This is only a few of the verses. We read that Jesus is described this way. 1 Thessalonians 2, that he is our good hope. Titus 2.13, he is our blessed hope. 1 Timothy 1, he is our hope. 1 Peter 3, he is our living hope. And 1 Corinthians 15 speaks to this most powerfully. It says he's not simply your hope in this day only, but he is your eternal hope. Christ, as defined in all of Scripture, as revealed in all of the Bible, can truly bring about hope. It's when we look into space that we understand space. <laughs> it's when we look away from the caricatures of our, own, uh, of our own agendas, of our own isogesis, that we can, that we, we can be shifted. It's difficult. It's challenging. It changes the way we live. It has huge implications. If I'm not king, but now Christ is the king, that's going to that's gonna drive my family and, and, and my decisions and my authority a different way. If I'm not the judge, but that is Jesus' role, I'm going to have to deal with my brother and sister a little bit differently. Because my role is not to judge them, but to call back the prodigal to a loving father who will take care of it in his balanced attributes. Read the Bible as one connected story with Christ as the point and pattern. The last thing I'll give you is that it's not disconnected. I don't want to say that this idea of God's story is an academic exercise because it's not. Uh, it's partially that. We're people. Uh, Jesus could have, if he, wanted, if he wanted his faith, if he wanted the gospel, if he wanted uh, his own revelation to be up in the clouds only in our heads, then the whole idea of Emmanuel is just kind of ridiculous. Like, why didn't he just, you know, 
Send us something, right? Use his hand right on the wall again, like believe this, everybody. He came down, he embodied it. He wanted to live it. We are people who live in community. We are people who live with our bodies, with our, with our, with our hearts, with our souls. There's something that happens there. It doesn't do a whole lot for me to walk around and say Jesus is king if it doesn't do anything in my life. It's just a head knowledge that doesn't turn down or turn into a heart knowledge. In Matthew 7, uh, 21 through 23, uh, we read that Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So that's kind of an urge that I have to you is, is first, we need to, with our heads, with our hearts, we need to be reading and understanding Christ as revealed in all of Scripture. But then we need to make sure that that takes effect in our lives, that we don't just leave it up there, but that we do something with it. He goes on, Jesus goes on to say, uh, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these Christian-y things? Now let us in. And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. To be in a relationship with someone, to truly know someone, means that you know facts about them, but you have experience with them. That's what the story is all about. God didn't give us a story to analyze and, and, and just make into movies or, or, or talk about his literature. It's something that's formative for our own relationships. It's something that's formative for, for the way we, we, we understand ourselves. He wants to move us towards a delight of him. That's why we do so many strange things on Sunday morning here as a family of God. That's why we confess our sin together, because that's part of the story. We're doing something with that story. That's why opportune time, we have our kids with us. Uh, that's why we worship with them, because it teaches us not to, 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 uh, to idolize or to, to make a crafted, perfect event on Sunday morning. Our kids force us to be sloppy, and that's good, because life is sloppy. It brings a reality to our worship. We, uh, we do, the, we do the, uh, uh, the Lord's Supper because we need to remember that thankfulness is not something for Sunday morning. It's just a way that the people of God should be. To understand God's story rightly with Jesus as the center means that things like confession, like gratitude, like generosity, like patience, like those things just come naturally. And I'm citing many things that end up being the fruits of the Spirit. God wants us to be on his story, but he doesn't simply want us to understand his story. He wants us to live his story. I'll finish with this. Verse 28 through, uh, uh, verses 28 through 30, uh, 31. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And here it is. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. You see, Jesus isn't revealed to these people when they, get, when they go to class and they learn about biblical theology with Christ as the sinner. That's not the moment when they understand him. He breaks bread. He does something in community. He lives out who he is, and they see it. The story of God lived out in the breaking of bread here, and it makes sense. This is meant to be part of what we do. 
I am so happy that we get to move towards the Lord's Supper right now, that we get to hear who he is and get a journey through that and get to experience his love, his forgiveness, his mercy, his sacrifice, his truth, his justice. All of those things come together as we share the Lord's Supper with one another. So the urge for you today is to read God's story with Christ as the point and the pattern. As the point and the pattern of the story, as the point and the pattern of our faith, and as the point and the pattern of our life together. Let's pray.